Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Mod Path Chat, the official podcast of modern pathology featuring interviews with authors and experts on the latest science, technology, and developments in the field of pathology. Your host, Dr. George Netto, is the editor-in-chief of Modern Pathology and the chair of pathology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Here's Dr. Netto. Welcome to another exciting episode of our podcast. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Louis Pepperdainer, Professor of Pathology and Pediatrics at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. I have had the privilege to be trained by Dr. Daner during my fellowship at WashU. Dr. Daner is one of the pillars of the anatomic pathology field. His immense career contributions spans four decades and are still going, by the way, with over 450 original publications and 35 books and book chapters. He published the first edition of his renowned textbook on pediatric surgical pathology in 1975. And this year, he just published the fifth edition of Stalker Daner Pediatric Pathology. He has received numerous awards, including the Distinguished Pathologist Award by the USCAP board. He's here to share with us his journey with an entity that is dear to his heart that he initially described in 1977 that ultimately led to the recognition of a novel syndrome, namely the Dicer-1 tumor uh, predisposition syndrome. Last month, Dr. Daner and his group published a comprehensive review uh, on that syndrome in our journal Modern Pathology, which will be the topic of our conversation. Thank you for accepting my invitation, Dr. Daner. Thank you, Dr. Nero. Oh, Dr. Nero. Yeah, you could call me George. I remember how uh, I remember that year. So, uh, so let's start talking about this. And uh, and I, it's an amazing review article uh, that I uh, every time I read it, I learn more and more. So, to to before we kick in talking about the the, the actual syndrome, give, take us back with some historical. Uh, perspective, how this started, and uh, and how you stumbled into all this. Well, the, the story began on January the first, nineteen seventy-seven. Wow! It began with a frozen section. I was called in on the first of January, New Year's Day, to the University of Minnesota Hospital to do a frozen section 
on a three-year-old child who had a large thoracic mass. Now, the trip into the University of Minnesota Hospital was a treacherous one since the governor had uh, had ordered all the roads cleared because of ice and snow, hmm. a not uncommon event in, in the Twin Cities area. Uh, when I... When I did the frozen section and reported back to the uh, to the pediatric surgeon that it, I was looking at a high-grade malignant neoplasm, and I wasn't quite certain whether I had seen a neoplasm quite like this before. The pediatric surgeon related back to me. He said, "That sounds like something that you that you've said to me on more than one occasion." <laughs> Uh, and so, so as it turned out, uh, a couple of days, couple of days later, I showed the case to my colleague, Dr. Juan Rosai. Okay. Juan and I were together there at the University of Minnesota, and uh, and it was a, a a wonderful, it was a wonderful twelve year excursion that Juan and I had. And it's very difficult for me to talk about anything of my life without talking about Juan Rosai. So Juan looked at the looked at the uh, sections of this tumor and thought that it maybe was some sort of teratoma. He wondered whether it was a teratoma that had undergone a not had undergone a somatic transformation to a high grade to a high grade sarcoma, and so I listened to Juan and I said, you know, Juan, that's a that's 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 a great idea, but, but you know what we have is this big mass, but we have not found an underlying germ cell cancer at least yet, and so that's where the story. Wow. began in a sense ended but it didn't end there it turned out that this child had an older sibling who at the age of 4 years had died of a high grade malignant neoplasm hmm. that was difficult to classify so on the 1st of january 1977 there was already an embedded clue that maybe there was more to the story than simply this high-grade malignant neoplasm. And I ended up signing it out as exactly that, as a high-grade malignant neoplasm. And in fact, also recognized the fact that there was a rhabdomyosarcomatous component to it. Mm -hmm. And it was that rhabdomyosarcoma component that then led the, the pediatric hematologist oncologist to then at least approach this in a therapeutic, uh, therapeutic manner. Well, over a quite literally a 10 year period, we accumulated, we accumulated 11 additional cases. And I began discussing these cases and reporting the first three cases in an abstract and presented the findings at the Society for Pediatric Pathology meeting, 
with the hope that somebody out there in the audience would have seen a similar tumor. And indeed, after I gave my presentation and, and was asked a question or presented with a comment, you know, I think I've seen one of those. <laughs> and so that's how the story began to unfold. And, and it was in, then in the late 1980s that our first paper appeared in Cancer under the title of Pluripulmonary Blastoma. Now, we chose that because a couple of the tumors amongst that first group of 11, it was unclear whether that tumor had arisen from the chest wall, from the diaphragm. It was, it was very difficult. Plus the fact that pulmonary blastoma as a diagnosis already existed in the literature and a tumor that, uh, that the, the famed British uh, pulmonary pathologist Herbert Spencer had reported. But the unusual aspect of what he was reporting was a biphasic neoplasm with an epithelial and kind of a primitive uh, sarcomatous component. And it was, it was, and it was out on a run around, around River Road in the Twin Cities because I struggled with what are we going to call this tumor? Originally, I was going to, we were going to use the term thoracoblastoma, mm-hmm. a tumor arising in the thorax. Use that in a couple of abstracts. But as I was rounding River Road, I came back and I told the fellow who was working with me, Carlos Maniville, I said, Carlos, I've got the name of the tumor, pleuropulmonary blastoma. And so it was, it was, that was the inspiration for how to designate this tumor. Well, as we then roll into the 1990s, I then, one of my collaborators was Dr. Jack Priest. Uh, Jack was, uh, was a fellow in pediatric uh, oncology when I arrived there at the University of Minnesota. And, and a couple of the patients that we saw were, in fact, patients that, that uh, Jack Priest had been consulted on. And it was in the early 1990s that, uh, and Jack was one of the co-authors of that original paper. And Jack said, if we're going to learn something about this, we need more cases. And it was with that thought that then the origin of the of what we ended up calling the International Plural Pulmonary Blastoma Registry. Hmm. And that went up online. And indeed, that was the source. That became then the source of additional of additional cases. Uh, and, and the ball started rolling, and it was in the early 1990s that we then recognized that there were that 
that we then began to see these first families in which not only pleuropulmonary blastoma, that this tumor arose, but also there were other neoplasms. And the first of these was a cystic nephroma of the kidney. And in fact, in, it was in 1996 that uh, that first report that appeared in the Journal of Pediatrics that we suggested that we were dealing with a familial syndrome. And so it was, it was with that observation, with the recognition that there were other childhood sarcomas, that there in about 15% of cases, that there was this multi-cystic lesion of the kidney that either was recognized at the time of the pleuropulmonary blastoma or was recognized later on. At, this, at that time, the cystic nephroma, this pediatric cystic tumor, was thought to be related to Wilms' tumor. Mm-hmm. It was regarded as part of the, was part of the spectrum of the Wilms, of the Wilms tumor. The extreme maturated and, end. Yeah. And so how did that fit in? Uh, and it was then in the late 1990s, the other important observation that came up, because those first 11 cases were tumors in retrospect that were all the solid type 3 PPBs. But it was in the 1990s with the additional cases that we then began to see a cystic lesion of the lung that had in fact been previously reported as case reports. I being one one of the individuals writing a paper on congenital cystic adenomatoid malformation with rhabdomyosarcoma, with embryonal type rhabdomyosarcoma, with this cambium layer-like growth pattern. Well, around this same time, my longtime friend and colleague in pediatric pathology, Tom Stocker, was reporting a multi-cystic lesion in the lung as a type of congenital cystic adenomatoid malformation, type 4. And that, it was interesting, created, created a bit of stress between... Tom and myself, what we were basically talking about the one and the same lesion. He thought it was a malformation. I, and we began to think about that this was the progenitor lesion in the development. Because we, during that period of time in the 1990s, we saw solid and cystic lesions. The solid lesion looked like the solid type 3 PPB. The cystic portion of the lesion looked like Tom's type 4 CCAM or what we were referring to as the type 1 PPB. And so, and that was how the evolution then 
of the type one, this transitional type two with a residual type one multicystic lesion, and then this solid high-grade multi-pattern primitive sarcoma that had not only rhabdomyosarcoma, he had nodules of cartilage that, that, that had the features of chondrosarcoma, a spindle cell kind of infantile fibrosarcoma-like pattern, and then areas consisting of little nests of primitive round cells that look like blastema, the type of blastema that one associates with Wilms tumor. And so we had this multi-pattern complex sarcoma that was also had this high-grade anaplasia of the type that was described, anaplasia as defined by, by Beckwith and Palmer in reference to the Wilms tumor, as to the unfavorable histology of Wilms tumor. How fascinating. So that's how this evolution of this entity began and relating it back to the, basically the propositus, which was that case from January 1st, 1977. That was our first recognized case of a type three pleuropulmonary blastoma. And so that's how we ended up, where we ended up. During this period of time, we also began to see families, not just one family, but a second family and a third family. And so what happened then? And that was really the important role that that Jack Priest and my then former resident fellow Ashley Hill came into the came into the picture. Uh-huh. Ashley and Jack went out with these met with these families, and it was these families that were very interested in what was going on in their families, and those folks rolled up their sleeves and and gave blood so that cells could be collected from these families. And it was the collection of those samples, George, that then led that then led in 2009 to Ashley Hill now identifying using SNP, we didn't have whole genome, Correct. you know, no uh, sequencing, but through the using, using SNP technology, identified, identified the gene. The, and, and how did that come about? That came about, and I mentioned, we mentioned that in the, in the paper, came about through a paper that, uh, that Ashley and, uh, and Paul Goodfellow came up with. It appeared in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science uh, several years before, looking at a conditional knockout of Dicer 1. 
Now, you can't knock out both alleles of Dicer 1. If you knock out both alleles in the Dicer 1 in, in a mouse in a mouse model, they don't make it past E3. It's lethal. So using a conditional knockout in epithelium, what they created, what Harris and, and, and co-workers created was a multi-cystic lesion in the lung, George, Similar. that looked exactly like type 1 Maybe. PPB. Maybe. And I remember Ashley and I sitting in my former office, not too far from where I'm sitting right now. We looked at this paper, and I said, Ashley, why don't we go for it? Why don't you go for it? You're working in Paul Goodfellow's lab. I said, why don't you start, why don't you start looking at chromosome 14? And let's look at Dicer, at the Dicer, at that Dicer gene. I said, there's got to be more than happen chance between the similarity of this multicystic lesion in this conditional Dicer 1 knockout and what we're seeing with PPB. And lo and behold, I remember Ashley, after looking at the first family, calling me and saying, I think we've got it. And what she had, she, she discovered this heterozygous germline mutation in Dicer 1. And George, it fit right into the paradigm, right into the Knudsen paradigm of the two-hit, of the two-hit hypothesis. You knock out one copy of the germline, and then you get a postzygotic somatic mutation in the same gene. And so, and, and that, appear, that paper appeared in 2009. And from that point on, George, we then, we then uh, hooked up with the folks at the National Cancer Institute, began with the family studies, we then recognized not only cystic nephroma, but this evolving, but this evolving phenotype of tumors in a variety in virtually every organ that that were related back to uh, Dicer uh, to Dicer one. And in the paper, you'll see that in Table one. We kind of it's 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 very interesting that that many of these tumors, regardless of their primary site, that these tumors have it's that they have this morphologic motif of this of a of 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 this emergence of these multi-pattern high-grade sarcomas to the extent now that pathologists who are aware of the Dicer 1, aware of just the most common of these, of the high-grade sarcomas is the, is the pleuropulmonary blastoma, that we're now seeing cases where the pathologists are saying, you know, I'm seeing this ovarian tumor 
and it's got cartilage. It's got some rhabdomyosarcoma. Is this a Dicer 1 tumor? And lo and behold, you know, and then doing the follow-up, the follow-up genetic counseling and, and the studies is that we have continued to identify uh, these families. Now, the good news for these families is that the is that unlike Lee Fraumini, unlike a lot of these other uh, tumor predisposition syndromes where there is high penetrance, where there is where there where there where the where the phenotype has high expressivity. For instance, in familial adenomatous polyposis, I mean, all of those patients are going to get are going to get polyps. Whereas we est- currently estimate that it may be only two to three percent of the of the children that will that will develop these tumors. So that's the good news out of the bad news. But nonetheless, it points out that it's extremely important to identify to identify these kids. And at the end of the paper. George, I point out the fact that that tumor predisposition syndromes, there's that the recent study from Denmark, that it may be as high as 50% of kids with childhood cancers may have a familial predisposition, may be part of a familial predisposition syndrome. So wow. important. But Which- this is fascinating. I, I didn't want to interrupt you uh, because it's just just an amazing story. And and it's uh, as as in many podcasts, you know, the marriage of morphology and how start with morphology. You saw the thread, uh, you saw that what you call the morphologic motif throughout these tumors. And, and then let's dig deep and, and see what molecular underpinning. And that's how the dicer. Uh, one story. Well, I, I think it's important. I, I, you know, I am one person that's part of a, that's part of a really over these 40 years and pleural pulmonary blastoma and the Dicer one syndrome defines so much of my, of my professional life. I mean, George, there's not a day of my life that I don't get a case. I review virtually all of the cases from the, from the registry. And, and I mean, yesterday I saw three uh, pleural pulmonary blastomas. This morning I saw a follicular adenoma because that probably is the most common group of tumors in the Dicer 1 setting is follicular adenomas, papillary thyroid carcinomas, and then, of course, one of my colleagues here, uh, Rebecca Chernick. I don't know whether Rebecca was here when when you were here, but Rebecca reported reported very recently uh, poorly differentiated thyroid carcinoma in children those tumors, unlike their adult counterpart, are Dicer 1 tumors. Yes. And so that, so it's, it's, 
this incredible, this incredible story. And I wouldn't be here telling you this story without all of the various collaborators uh, that I've had. I've had this wonderful group of many of them, former residents and fellows. And in fact, the senior, the first author of this review paper, Yvonne Gonzalez, former resident. Uh, Yvonne is, is finishing up his PPATH fellowship at CHOP. We'll be going to Indiana University there as a pediatric pathologist. Also, we'll be doing some genital urinary pathology. But it's been when you look across these various individuals in this paper and in all of our papers, it has been it has been this incredible collaborative effort and also the institutional support, the multi-institutional support that we've had to bring this forth. And I've been privileged, I've been privileged to be part of to be part of this story. And um, it's not my story. It's really our story. And all of the people that, that I've had the privilege to work with. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems it's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's wonderful. So uh, it's always important 
all this knowledge is ultimately how it affects management. And, and you touched upon that, knowing that the family has that mutation, despite there is only two, 3% uh, penetration, uh, it's, it's very important for that family to know that they're carrying that syndrome. So you start with the tumor, you find the dicert, you, you go to the germline, and, and then the family uh, need to be uh, on notice. Well, uh, another, so- George, another aspect of this story as a pathologist, you know, as pathologists, we we sit behind the we sit behind our microscopes and we don't, you know, we don't directly often do not directly come in contact with 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 the patients. But that's been another part of the very humanizing part of this story is the number of family meetings that we've had where we have brought families together and have related our findings to them. I I mean, it is, that has been another extraordinarily gratifying aspect of this, of, you know, and these people, Children who have grown up, who've survived the disease, families there mourning the passing of their of of their children, but also sharing their experience with other families. It's it's really it's it's been an experience. You know, we talk about three hundred and sixty degree experiences. For me, this has been the 360-degree experience. Great story. And, and thank you, Dr. Daynor. This, this has been a, a very, very rewarding experience uh, to have you today. And I'm sure our audience uh, are, are going to enjoy it. Uh, as much, if not better, even. And uh, we, I refer the audience to the paper because literally there is no time to talk about all the entities and this, the tumors that emanate from that syndrome, uh, they pretty much cover the entire body from ovarian, uh, female genital, paratesticular, kidney, as you touch, uh, head and neck uh, around the thyroid, CNS. So, and, and all carry the same morphologic uh, theme, uh, which, which should alert us when we're looking at these tumors. Uh, thank you, not just for that, for, for everything you've done and you continue to do for the field. Uh, to say that you're a giant is, is a cliche, but uh, you really are. The one thing that haven't changed, Dr. Daner, is looking at you now behind you, the, uh, the mountain of books and this organized mountain of books still remain the same way as, as during the fellowship. So some things never change, right? That is uh, that is. That is correct. I'm a master of entropy. <laughs> that is awesome. Pepper, as, as you would like to recall, it's been, it's been a pleasure. And uh, we look forward uh, to your next paper. Uh, it's uh, such uh, amazing uh, mind acuity, amazing contributions. And uh, reading the paper, I could tell how many drafts you, uh, you, you corrected for Ivan and, and the others. Uh, so uh, it's, it's your uh, soul and uh, your motif in it, writing motif in it. Thank you very much. And I look Thank forward to uh, other, other occasions. Any opinions expressed in this podcast are the speaker's own and do not represent the views of modern pathology, Springer Nature, UAB, or USCAP. 
Your ModPath chat host and scientific director is Dr. George Netto. Producers are Christina Crow, Amber Jackson, Dr. Sarah Jang, and Dr. Catherine Ketchum. Technical direction is provided by Kaminsky Productions, music by Mitch Neubauer. Thanks to the authors, reviewers, and editors of Modern Pathology for making this podcast possible. <laughs>